0: All right. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you all. You can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 13 if you have the Pew Bible that is on page 453. Brent, could you turn me down just a little? I feel like I'm going to get a little too excited this morning and start yelling at people and freak them out. So just a hair would be great. Thank you. right. Well, young people, you may need to go home and Google these song lyrics. Um, And as I share them, they will ring true to some of our uh, older folks. Unless we think that this uh, emphasis on positivity and just being happy all the time is some new phenomenon, listen to some of these lines. Don't worry, be happy. Ooh, child, things are going to get easier. Ooh, child, things are going to get brighter. Me and you, and you and me, no matter how they toss the dice, it had to be. The only one for me is you, and you for me, so happy together. But what if we're not, right? What if we're not happy? And what if it feels like things aren't going to get easier? Or what if it feels like things aren't going to get brighter? And what if we do worry? No, I'm not suggesting that there's no place for happy songs in our lives. It's good to sing happy songs. We just looked at Psalm 100 a few weeks ago, where there was not any hint of unhappiness. And we talked about the place of Psalm 100 in the Psalter and in our Christian lives. It's vitally important that we are able to genuinely sing Psalm 100 and really mean it because its truths are really true. But as the people of God, we know about life in a fallen world. We know about the reality of life in this world. Last summer, when we looked at the Psalms and uh, on Psalm 1, I talked about my issue with contemporary Christian music. And the problem is that... You turn on the radio, right? And it's just everything's happy all the time, right? And there's no angst. There's no almost, I shouldn't say no. There's almost no angst in contemporary Christian music, right? Just everything's good all the time. There's very little acknowledgement that there are dark days and there are dark seasons and not all is right with the world. And sometimes God feels light years away. Sometimes the internal pain and the anguish that we feel seems unbearable, and sometimes we even wonder if it's worth keeping on, right? Is it worth it to keep on keeping on? And this is exactly why we need the Psalms. We've been asking this question this summer. Why do we need the Psalms just in general? Why do we need them? And why do we need the Psalms right now in our current cultural moment? This is why we need the Psalms of Lament. If you haven't felt the weight of this yet in the service, right, you probably should check your pulse. This is what we've been trying to—again, we're not like trying to mani- emotionally manipulate people and like get them in the mood for something, right? But this is what we've been doing this whole service to help us to feel the weight of this, right? And so when we come to Psalm 13, we've, we sang it already earlier. We've, we've gone through our liturgy and had that focus. When we come to this text— we should be prepared now to say, okay, this is, this, is what we're, this is what we're ready for. This is what we've been embracing this whole service. And our goal, we're not just trying to like make everybody feel bad, right? Like, okay, psalm of lament, you just, we want to make you feel like a terrible human being. But it is to teach us, right? It's to teach us, to help us to learn to embrace lament as something that is prescribed for us right here in Scripture, Well, you might have showed up for worship this morning, and you've been having a really good week. Maybe you woke up this morning, you had a great quiet time, the birds were singing, like everything was right with the world, right? You came to church this morning expecting to get a spiritual pick-me-up. And if that was you, praise God, and we're glad you're here, and I hope you're encouraged. But maybe you arrived this morning, and it's been a really bad week. And maybe you had a really bad morning. Maybe it's been a bad year, right? Maybe the reality that we live in a broken world that we can't fix, and we deal with hard relationships that we can't fix, and we look in the mirror and we see a broken person that we can't fix, no matter how hard we try. Maybe all of that feels completely crushing and overwhelming to you. And to that I say, welcome to the club, right? welcome to david's club and abraham and moses club and jeremiah and ezekiel's club and jesus club and paul and timothy's club you are not alone in this experience and psalm 13 was written so that you would see that and you would embrace it and you would praise god for it that you would have permission to come before the lord in the midst of your lament in the midst of your trials, in the midst of the hardships of your life. You have permission to do that. And God has given us this language right here. When you feel like you're just hanging on by a thread, we have this psalm, we have these words, we have the same experience from one of the saints of old. And if you are here today and all seems right with the world, i will just... I will tell you, just wait, (laughs) because the day will come when you will desperately need the words of Psalm 13. So let's go there now. Let's go to the scriptures. Psalm 13, let's see from David's psalm of lament how we might approach God in the midst of our darkest days. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord... lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we do come before you, and we praise you, and we rejoice, and we sing your name, we sing about your salvation, we sing because you have dealt bountifully with us in Christ. God, as we hear your word this morning, as we reflect on the realities of what David went through, and how we can relate to these very things, God, would you open our hearts and our minds to receive from you, to receive from your word, God, to be changed by you. God, I pray that your Spirit would work and penetrate our hearts, do a work of sanctification in our lives that we can say it had nothing to do with us, but it was all your grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 13, uh, most scholars classify the, the classify the psalms of lament into psalms of personal lament and psalms of communal or corporate lament. Uh, psalm 12, just before this, is a psalm of communal lament, where the people of God are lamenting together. Obviously, as we look at it here, Psalm 13 is a personal r- lament, right? It's David's individual lament. And you can just see that if you skim through the language here, David uses personal pronouns I, me, or my 18 times just in these six verses. So it has a very personal feel to it. This is really a peek into David's intimate relationship with the Lord. This is like we're getting a peek into to David in his journal, right? Like this is David just crying out to the Lord, and we get to see this. We get to peek into what David went through and what in his life, in some of his deepest, darkest wrestlings, he got to put these things to ink. And, and we get to read it here thousands of years later. And we see that. We see that deep, dark wrestling here in these four rapid-fire questions in the first two verses. Notice the repetition here with the words, how long? We see that word, we see that question repeated four times, how long? And in the Hebrew, it's literally, until when? So until when, Lord, will you forget me until forever? Until when, until what point in my life will you hide your face from me? And these first two verses, as I mentioned, are describing very personally David's relationship with the Lord. And we don't know here that sometimes in the Psalms we get a description at the beginning of like the situation that this is talking about. We don't know the context in David's life for Psalm 113. We don't know exactly what was going on. But we have to read this knowing that this was obviously a season in David's life, right? This is, there's something that David was going through here, just like we go through different seasons in our lives. You might have heard this referred to as the dark night of the soul. Uh, most often that is referring to a season in someone's life. It's not just talking about a single night, right? And maybe somebody had like this horrible experience and this wrestling with God all night long, and they would call it a dark night of the soul. But usually as Christians, when we hear that terminology, dark night of the soul, it's talking about a, a, usually a prolonged period in our lives where it just feels like utter darkness, and it just feels like, God, where are you? What is going on? I remember when we lived in Beijing, I had uh, two teammates, and we would meet together for accountability, and we read through a book by John Piper called, When the Darkness Will Not Lift. And at that time in our lives, all three of us, just for, I don't even remember exactly what was going on, but we all three were just really walking through some difficult things. And to just enter into that together and to acknowledge, like, sometimes it feels like the darkness just doesn't lift, right? And to, to press in together in that and say, God, you are good, right? You are still with us. You are who you say you are. But man, it's hard right now, right? Like we're just going through some stuff and it doesn't feel all, you know, happy together, right? Well, David's cries here in Psalm 13 get right to the heart of some of our deepest fears. And these are the questions about being abandoned by God and even cursed by God, which is implied here when he speaks of God hiding his face from him. This is not what you want, right? You don't want God to hide his face from you. This is a horrifying thought for the child of God. God, why are you hiding your face from me? And if that's not enough, if the weight of those first two questions are not enough— David then has to turn inward as he examines himself. Look at verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? You can almost feel the weight of this as we read it. David is crying out. He's saying, God, I can't bear this burden that I feel in my heart and my soul. This is too much for me. The weight of this is just simply too heavy. And again, if, that's, if it's not enough that he feels abandoned by God and feels like he can't deal with his own self, now he turns outward and we see this third and final layer that gets added to the mix. He says, how long, at the end of verse two, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? So again, there's, there's this three part, there's just three layers to this just that just makes it feel totally crushing and overwhelming. And we'll look at, who or what this enemy might be in a little bit. But for now, let's consider the anguish and the desolation that David is experiencing here. He's in a very dark place, right? That's clear. And praise God because he lets his frustrations fly. You might read this and you might feel like, I could never talk to God like this. And I would say to you, why not? Is it your own pride and self-sufficiency? Do you think that in your darkest moments that you need to man up or to woman up and pull yourself together? How is that working out for you? Maybe your problem is that you haven't really ever learned to lament. Maybe you don't pray like this because you don't really trust the Lord, or you don't really believe that he will hear you if you cry out to him in this way. But that's the beauty of this psalm. David doesn't just stop with his complaint. His cries of agony here are followed up by cries for deliverance. We see that in verses 3 and 4. Notice the language that David uses here. There are three imperatives or commands that David directs toward God. The first one is consider actually means to look or to pay attention. He's saying, God, look at me. Pay attention to what is going on in my life and answer me. Don't be silent. Don't hide your face from me. God, answer me. And then third, light up my eyes. Now, you might read this and feel really uncomfortable, just like you did with the first two verses. Like, do I dare speak to God like this? But again, notice to whom David addresses these demands. And I think this here, don't miss this. I think this is really one of the keys to unlock this psalm. It's really easy to just skim over this because it seems so commonplace. Do you see it there at the end of the first line in verse 3? Consider, answer, O Lord my God. Oh, Lord, my God. David uses the covenant name for God, Yahweh. When God revealed himself to Moses, he revealed himself by this covenant name. We see that there in the English with the all caps, right? L-O-R-D, all caps. That's God's covenant name, Yahweh. He says, you are the Lord. And then he calls him my God. That's the word Elohim. It's the generic word for God. But this is this here is not just, it's such as a title. David doesn't just throw this out and say, you know, The Lord God, he says, Oh Lord, my God. It's a declaration on David's part that he belongs to God. So, do you see the significance here of this? If we read this, if we read the things that just came before this, and we say, I could never talk to God like this, then I would ask, Do we really believe that he is our God? Can we go to him with these cries? Can we go to him with these demands and say, Oh Lord, my God? Do these things. He doesn't just say, a God, right? Oh, Lord, a God. Not even, oh, Lord, the God of the universe. But, my God. And we can do the same thing. Oh, Lord, my God. You are my God. I, we are your people, right? We belong to him. And this is a very bold declaration by David. And we can pray with the same boldness. Listen to David's words of praise at the beginning of Psalm 63. "'O Lord, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live.'" In your name, I will lift up my hands. Psalm 13 certainly feels like David is in a dry and weary land where there is no water, doesn't it? Where his soul is thirsting for the Lord. Just consider the second part here of his pleas for, deri- for deliverance in verses 3 and 4. He's asking for God to consider and answer, and then he says, light up my eyes, right? For a purpose. He asks all these things for a purpose, and we see it in this three-part repetition following this of the word lest. First, he says, lest I sleep the sleep of death. And some commentators think that the enemy that David is referring to in verse 2 in the singular, when it says, my enemy, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Most commentators think that David is speaking about death here as his enemy. Why should my enemy be exalted? Exalted over me. So he's asking God to act so that death will not be exalted over him, so that death will not have some final say, as we see there. Lest my enemy in verse 4 say, I have prevailed over him. So David here may be pleading for his very life when he says, Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. And he's asking for God to keep him from death, again, so that death cannot gloat over him. But then there is a third lest here, which broadens into a plural representation of enemies. When David says, lest my foes, notice it goes from the singular of enemy to the plural, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. This is almost certainly talking about actual physical foes, right? Actual people. People who hated David and wanted to see him fail. They wanted to see him no longer trust in God. They wanted him to be shaken. Several weeks ago, uh, when I preached on Psalm 100, I talked about a conversation I had with my friend Joey in China, uh, how we talked about in the midst of all the struggles, in the midst of the trials, uh, things that are going on in the world, how the gospel is always the answer. Well, within about a week of that conversation, I got a text message uh, one morning. I think it was a Wednesday morning from another friend who uh, we used to do house church together, our three families and some others. Uh, This other friend is in Thailand now. And he said, hey, uh, Joey and Jenny got a knock on the door from the police. Uh, This actually happened on Tuesday morning, and they were given until Saturday to pack up all their things and be out of the country. So after 17 years of ministering faithfully, of of trusting the Lord, of actually, Joey is is American-born Chinese. His parents were both born in China, and and he wanted to he wanted to spend the rest of his days there. He wanted to he wanted to be buried in China. He wanted to serve the church there. Get a knock on the door. Twelve police officers show up, separate them, interrogate them. Psh, you're out of here. Man, I mean, what a time to pray Psalm 13, right? <laughs> like, and again, I'm not trying to. You know, not trying to say, like, the Communist Party in China is, is my number one enemy, but that's an enemy against God's church when they're doing things like this, right? When they're busting up churches, and when they're saying you can't even meet online, right? No, no Zoom calls for churches. They're busting, they're sending missionaries home. They want to see God's church. They want to see God's people shaken. And what's the response in the midst of that? How are we to respond, right? How are we to respond in the midst of that? And I think we see the answer in the turning point here in Psalm 13. The transition from verse 4 to verse 5 gives us the key. And it all hinges on this idea of rejoicing. That's the title of the sermon. Who shall rejoice? So I think that's the key here. And let me try to make my case. Who shall rejoice? There are two specific instances in the Old Testament where, th- where this idea of foes rejoicing over God's people is clearly spelled out. The first one is in Numbers 13 and 14. In Numbers chapter 13, Moses sends 12 spies into the land of Canaan, one spy from each tribe. They go into the land, they spy it out, they come back with a whole bunch of fruit from the land. Caleb and Joshua stand up and they say, Let's do it. We can go. We can take these guys, right? And the rest of the ten, the rest of the twelve, the other ten, say, you know, these guys are really big, like, I don't think we can do it. And they're like, no, the Lord is with us, let's do this. And then the people start to grumble, and they're like, Moses, like, come on, man, we had everything we needed in Egypt, right? And like, we've been wandering, and all, like, let's just, you know what, we're going to pick a new leader, we're done with you, Moses, we're going to pick a new leader, and we're going to go back to Egypt. And the Lord is furious, and he wants to strike him dead, and Moses intercedes for them, and the glory of the Lord shows up, and they actually try to, uh, they try to stone Caleb and Joshua, and then the Lord threatens to put them to death. So as Moses intercedes, he, this is what he cries out. Okay, I'm going with this idea of the, our foes rejoicing, right? Listen to what Moses prays to the Lord. He said, Lord, if you do this, and the Egyptians hear of it, then they will tell the other nations who have heard of your fame, and they will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, to, give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And then after that, Moses reminds the Lord of his promise to be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he asks the Lord to forgive the iniquity of his people. That's the first instance, okay? Very dramatic scene there. The second instance, which actually happens chronologically before this, but it's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 9, is the instance of the golden calf, right? Something we're probably familiar with. Where Moses, again, asked the Lord not to destroy the people because of their rebellion and idolatry. And his argument here to the Lord is similar to that in Numbers 14. He says, Lest the land from which you brought us say... Because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised, and because he hated them, he has brought them out and put them to death in the wilderness. And then Moses, again, he kind of reminds God, he says, God, they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. So do you see what is going on here in these two instances? Moses' pleas to the Lord involved the enemies of God's people not getting the upper hand, right? We don't want to give them reason to boast that they have somehow defeated us. Them not being able to rejoice that God was unable to deliver his people. So Moses had a concern here for God's fame as much as it was for the people of Israel to save face before the nations, right? It's, it's not letting the enemies boast, and it's for God's glory and God's fame. And I think that's the same cry that we see here from David in Psalm 13. Oh Lord, my God, deliver me from death and from my enemies so that they may not rejoice over me that they may not have the last word and that your fame among the nations may not be diminished. Christians, I think we need to take a long, hard look at our lives. Whether it's our face-to-face interactions or our social media interactions with those who actively hate the Lord and want nothing to do with him as their sovereign king. Or those who may just seem to be indifferent to the things of God, but are clearly not living for him? What do our lives suggest about our desire that God's fame not be diminished? Are we jealous for God's fame, for his glory to be displayed among the nations? Do we see the implications of our actions, how our lack of trust in the God we profess with our lips, though our hearts may be far from him, how that might actually cause those around us to rejoice in our downfall or in God's name being dragged through the mud. Maybe what the world needs to see from the Christian church is a bunch of broken sinners who are putting the ancient wisdom of David into practice, who are humbling themselves before God and crying out to him for deliverance who are genuinely lamenting, and not just for show, right? Not just to look good to the world around us. Who are grieved at the state of affairs in this world and in our nation. And not just in some political sense of like, we need to get back to the good old days, right? But grieved by the sin around us and the sin within us that we participate in. And while Psalm 13 is a personal lament, it's one that we should all be able to sing and to pray and to apply to our own lives. It's included in the Psalter so that we may sing and pray and apply it corporately as the body of Christ. Right? We just sang it this morning. This is, a, this is a great psalm that has both that personal application and that corporate application. And if we just stopped there at the end of verse 4— it would be a pretty ugly picture wouldn't it if we just stopped with crying out and ah all this is weighing on me but there's a beautiful progression here in this psalm it's something that chris mentioned last week that we saw in psalm 42 and it's really the kind of the grand arc the grand narrative that we see in all of scripture this this idea from lament to praise right from the fall in the garden all the way to the end of revelation we see this we see this arc going from from lament to praise or as mark vrogop in his book dark clouds deep mercy which we uh, did last year for our summer conversation on psalm one on psalm 13 he says he says that it moves from pointed questions to god centered worship it moves from pointed questions to God-centered worship. So again, we see that idea of the fall, right? We see the reality. These questions that David asks here and the, the commands that he makes in, in verses 1 through 4, these are reality of, of, the, of life in a fallen world. But then that it doesn't stop there. It goes from... Those pointed questions to God centered worship as we celebrate the reality of redemption and consummation, of what God has done for us in Christ to save us and what we one day will experience forever. So we see that here in verses 5 and 6. And this, I think, answers our question who shall praise? Notice the first line in verse 5. There are two things here that are emphatically stated in the Hebrew. Remember I said that the personal, um, there were 18 personal pronouns? Usually in the Hebrew, the way the words are put together, they actually, like the prepositions and the the pronouns are all just tacked on to to the verb, okay? So it would be um, like, in your steadfast love would, like, I have trusted in your steadfast love. That's all just put together in one word. But here... This actually, the but I, at the beginning of verse 5, this is the only place in this whole psalm, out of all 18 personal pronouns, where it stands alone. But I stands alone at the beginning of this sentence to put the emphasis on what is happening here in this verse, okay? So but I is very emphatic here. And then, um, and then he goes on, okay? There's two things that are emphatic. The but I, and then... The other thing is actually the word order uh, is kind of mixed up here. The but I is emphatic. And then here's how the verse should literally read. It should say, but I, in your steadfast love, have trusted. He's kind of got the Yoda thing going on here. But I, in your steadfast love, have trusted. So notice what's happening. David doesn't talk about how awesome he is, right? I have trusted, right? I'm the man, right? God you know, I'm awesome, I'm the king, I've trusted in you. No, he puts God's steadfast love before his trust, right? So the emphasis here is that God, I in your steadfast love, it's all about God's steadfast love. I have trusted in that, okay? That's very important here. And this Idea here, this, this word, we've talked about this before, steadfast love, it's the word hesed. It's God's unfailing love, we could translate it as. It's his covenant faithfulness that really, and again, this, when we go back to verse 1, will you forget me forever? This speaks to that. This says no, because my steadfast love is my unfailing forever love. So he's saying, God, I've trusted in your hesed and your unfailing steadfast love. And I know that you will not forget me forever because of of your love. And then notice the next line here. Who shall rejoice? My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. The enemies will not get the last word, David says, because his trust is in the Lord, and the Lord's steadfast love, and the Lord's salvation. Therefore, he will sing to the Lord, because the Lord has dealt bountifully with him. Who shall rejoice? Who shall rejoice? I love the bookends of this psalm. They're so beautiful. We begin with David's accusatory question to the Lord. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Will you hide your face from me? And then we end with David's absolutely confident and opposite declaration that the Lord has dealt bountifully with him. And this is the key to David's praise. It's that God is who he says he is. That he does what is true to his character revealed in his word that he is trustworthy and praiseworthy. Let me demonstrate this again by looking at another one of David's psalms. This is one of my favorites. We looked at this last summer, Psalm 103. David declares in Psalm 103, beginning in verse 8, "...the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever." He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That word here in Psalm 103, the word for repay, is the same word that David uses to close out Psalm 13, saying that God has dealt bountifully with him. So in Psalm 103, it's stated negatively. God will not repay us according to our iniquities. He won't won't give us what we deserve, right? What we deserve is, is death, right? But God is gracious and he won't repay us according to our iniquities. That same word is used right here. To deal bountifully is the same idea. God won't repay, but he will deal bountifully because he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So let's bring this home to us here in 2020. Let's answer this question right here, right now. Who shall rejoice? And there's only one answer. It's the one who cries out to the Lord, even in the midst of their agony, who cries out for deliverance to their God because they have trusted in his unfailing love and because they know that the Lord has dealt mercifully and graciously with them and not given them what they deserve. Christian, this is your testimony if you are in Christ. This is true of you, even when it doesn't feel like it. This is who we are, and this is our testimony. And this song Psalm 13, it's not just David's song. It's not just our song that we can sing here today. It was our Lord Jesus Christ's song, was it not? He would have sang this song growing up as a young boy in Israel. The one who cried out as a grown man in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane, who told his disciples in Matthew 26, 38, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And then he fell on his face three times and prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And then our Savior went willingly to the cross to bear the wrath of God and to take our sin upon himself as he uttered these dreadful words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all of the horror of David's cries of agony in Psalm 13 became Jesus' reality as the father hid his face from his son. As the death of Jesus sent his band of followers into a tailspin. As the enemies of God rejoiced that this blasphemer was finally out of the way. And as Satan no doubt thought that his puny little schemes had prevailed. But praise God, death did not have the final say. As Jesus rose up from that grave, conquering sin and death and the devil, David's trust and the trust of all of the Old Testament saints was vindicated. The eternal king for whom the earthly king David had longed would return to his father where he would sit on his throne until he comes again in glory. And friends, that is our cause for rejoicing. As we sang earlier, Christ, the sure and steady anchor, as we face the wave of death, when these trials give way to glory, as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon, clouds behind and life secure, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. Christ, the shore of our salvation, ever faithful, ever true, we will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Let us hold fast to Christ, our anchor. Let us pray. God, I thank you that through this psalm of David, you give us permission to come before you with hard questions. To come before you even boldly to say, God, look, pay attention, answer me, because you are my God. Father, may this be true of everyone here that we all might be able to say, you are my God, God. And God I pray if that's not true of anyone here that they would turn to you that they would ask you to no longer hide your face but to shine your face upon them that they might see the beauty and the glory of Christ that they might know the forgiveness and reconciliation that comes for the one who trusts in Christ alone. And for those of us here God who do know you and do trust you though our faith may be weak, though our trust may may falter. God, we know that you will hold fast to us as we attempt to hold fast to you. God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your steadfast love and your kindness that you have shown us in Christ. Help us cling to him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.